Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now I can also accept Zelle and Venmo. Just use my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Good last, huh? We're in that baby light. There's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 232 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Final Duties and World Reaction, Part 2. On September 16, 1969, John McCormick of Massachusetts introduced the Apollo 11 crew to a joint session of Congress, saying, quote, we are honoring today three men who represent the best in America and whose coordinated skill, fantastic daring, and visionary drive have made history that constitutes a turning point of paramount importance in the journey of mankind. End quote. Each astronaut, Neil, Buzz, and Mike, addressed the enthusiastic audience about their successful moon landing. Armstrong saying, quote, It was here, in these halls, that our venture really began. End quote. This was a reference to the legislation that established the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, and the funding of the space program by Congress. Before the conclusion of the meeting, the honorees presented Speaker McCormick and Vice President Spiro T. Agnew with two American flags that had flown over the respective chambers before being brought onto the moon. The next duty for the astronauts was the Round the World Tour. It began on September 29th and lasted until November 5th. It was a very fast trip, covering 28 cities in 25 countries in 38 days, the astronauts' wives were allowed to go along on the trip, as well as a large staff. The first stop was Mexico City. There was an airport arrival ceremony involving Mexican government officials and the American ambassador, followed by a motorcade that was swarmed by enthusiastic crowds. That same day, 
There were civic events, a meeting with the President of Mexico, a news conference, and a reception hosted by the American ambassador. Next stop was Bogota, Colombia. Then an unexpected stop in Brazil. The U.S. had suspended diplomatic relations with Bolivia, and their plane was not allowed to fly over Bolivian airspace, so they made an unscheduled stop in Brasilia. It was an hour and a half for refueling. During that time, the astronauts got a tour of the city by bus. Then came Buenos Aires, Argentina, followed by two days in Rio de Janeiro. From there, they went to the Canary Islands. At this point, fatigue set in, and staff people were starting to become ill. It started with just one or two people with flu-like symptoms, and then it spread throughout the staff. A picture of a sick staff member made it to a newspaper, and then the doctor had to go on national TV to deny that the astronauts had brought back a lunar sickness and that all the staff were becoming ill as a result of being exposed to this illness. Next came Madrid, where they met Generalissimo Franco. Then Paris. Here's a news report in French. Et ce n'est pas fini. Arrivé donc ce matin à Orly, 10h40, l'avion avait tourné pendant 15 minutes car il était en avance. 10h40, au pied du tapis rouge, au pied de la passerelle, se trouve Monsieur Jacques Baumel, secrétaire d'État auprès du Premier ministre, pour accueillir Neil Armstrong, que vous voyez descendre en tête, en compagnie de sa femme qui porte un très joli tailleur bleu et rouge. Les enfants des écoles et un groupe de 250 petits Américains ont accueilli les astronautes aussi, en poussant des hurlements de joie, vous les voyez là-bas dans le fond. Then came Amsterdam, where they met Queen Juliana. Then Brussels, where they met Baldwin, King of the Brussels. And Oslo, where they met King Olaf. Then Bonn in West Berlin, where there was a motorcade through the city en route to City Hall, and there was a stop for the astronauts to visit the Berlin Wall. They passed a couple of checkpoints and saw a Russian tank at one. The astronauts were accompanied by their mayor and the U.S. Embassy people. They made brief remarks at the wall, mentioning a young man who had recently been shot leaping to freedom, and then they signed an official visitor's book. Next, they visited London and met the Queen. Presidential jet arrived at Heathrow, bringing America's Man on the Moon team to Britain. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins, together with their wives, touched down on British soil and found one of the warmest welcomes they'd yet received waiting for them. But the men who conquered the moon and came back fresh and happy showed signs of the strain that traveling around our globe can bring. Even so, they smiled easily and responded with sincerity as they prepared to launch into yet another whirlwind round of engagements in yet another country on their 22-nation tour. A huge crowd waited for them at the American Embassy. The three lunar pioneers had a tight schedule ahead of them. Even so, they found time to show they were more than moon men. They were good men of Earth, friendly men. 
Inside the embassy, more pressmen waiting, clamoring to get more pictures, ask questions of the men who had voyaged to another planet and, in their own words, taken a great leap forward for mankind. But time was pressing. The hours had been pre-planned almost to the minute. Nevertheless, Londoners were loath to let them go. So the motorcade left the embassy to drive the short distance to Buckingham Palace. For the trio of spacemen, this was the day they would meet the Queen and some of her family. Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, led the way on this historic meeting. Her Majesty, her husband and family, like the people of Britain, were proud to greet the space trio. Especially so were Prince Andrew and Prince Edward like any young boys would be. There too was Princess Anne and Princess Margaret. There was much to talk about. Later, the astronauts commented on how well-informed and interested in the American moon program were Her Majesty and the Duke. In their own words, Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins said the meeting was delightfully memorable. Downing Street was the next stop on their meeting, greeting and seeing liking tour of London. Here again, crowds waited to welcome them as the Prime Minister greeted the space heroes. They were to be guests of honour at a number 10 reception given by Mr. Wilson. Happily, despite their reported laryngitis, they posed in front of the famous fireplace. Three tired men, glad to share the fame which success had brought them. There at number 10 were schoolchildren from all over the country who had been invited to meet the astronauts. They, the people of tomorrow's age of space, would in years to come be able to look back on this occasion and say with justifiable pride that they had met three men called Collins, Aldrin and Armstrong. They got a little break when they visited Rome for three days. While there they met the Pope at the Vatican and I have a clip of him speaking about the Apollo 11 mission. Oggi è un giorno grande, un giorno storico per l'umanità. Se davvero questa sera due uomini metteranno piede sulla Luna, come noi, con tutto il mondo trepidante, esultante e dorante, auguriamo possa felicemente avvenire. Faremo bene a meditare. Sopra questo straordinario e strabiliante avvenimento, a meditare sul cosmo che ci apre davanti il suo volto muto, misterioso, nello sconfinato quadro dei secoli innumerevoli e degli spazi smisurati. Che cosa è l'universo? Donde? Come? Perché nell'ebbrezza di questo giorno fatidico, vero trionfo dei mezzi prodotti dall'uomo per il dominio del cosmo, noi dobbiamo non dimenticare il bisogno e il dovere che l'uomo ha di dominare se stesso. Ancora vi sono, lo sappiamo, tre guerre in atto sulla faccia della terra il Vietnam l'Africa il Medio Oriente una quarta 
si è aggiunta già con migliaia di vittime tra il Salvador e l'Honduras proprio in questi giorni e poi la fame affligge ancora intere popolazioni dov'è l'umanità vera? dov'è la fratellanza? la pace? quale sarebbe il vero progresso dell'uomo se queste sciagure perdurassero e si aggravassero? Next was Belgrade, Yugoslavia, where the astronauts started off on a duck hunt with President Tito's deputy prime minister. The astronauts' wives were taken on a hydrofoil trip down the Danube. They all ended up together for lunch at a country lodge and were served a seven-course Serbian meal, including roast pig and slavovitz which was the national drink of Yugoslavia. Then they were off to Turkey and Zaire. In Kinshasa, Zaire, there was a 25-mile drive from the airport to their villas, which were adjacent to the presidential palace and his offices. The crowd control in Zaire was harsh. The policemen had huge whips, And if anyone stepped off the curb to get into the path of one of the cars in the motorcade or tried to get to the astronaut's car, they would use the whips on them. The compound the astronauts were staying at had a private zoo, which the president owned, and you could hear the animals, especially at night. Next was Bombay, where the crowd was about one and a half million. Then Dhaka, Bangladesh. As the plane approached the airfield, the astronauts could see all the people at the airport waiting to see them. The aircraft crew had to shut off the engines as soon as they landed because the crowd broke through the restraints and came running out onto the airfield. Since the astronauts could not approach the terminal, cars were sent out to the plane to take the motorcade to the hotel. It was a hot day and there was no crowd control. The motorcade was overwhelmed by people, and the cars started to overheat on the way to the hotel. The astronauts' wives had to be moved to another car. Essentially, the motorcade drivers were on their own to find their way. The astronauts' car also overheated. In order to cool the engine down and prevent the car from stalling, the driver turned the heater on full blast and found a shortcut through a soccer field to get to the hotel. The next stop was Bangkok, Thailand, where they met the king and queen, and then Tehran, Iran, where they met the shawl. Next came Perth, Australia, where the local officials boarded the plane and sprayed for tsetse flies. Then on to Sydney, where they were greeted by Prime Minister John G. Gorton, Then off to Guam, Seoul, South Korea, and Tokyo, where they met the Emperor. It was a tiring trip for the astronauts and their families, but despite the fatigue and the repetitive nature of the ceremonies, it was a rare opportunity to see the world and visit the kings, queens, presidents, prime minister, ambassadors, and others. Probably, One of the most difficult things for the astronauts was dealing with the public. They were naturally uncomfortable around the public, and now suddenly they were on front stage to the world. 
People looked to them to say inspirational things. They were called upon to make speeches and remarks at every place they visited. The trip also produced some disturbing symptoms in Buzz, causing him to withdraw into a stony-faced silence from time to time. But aside from this, and the obvious distress it caused his wife Joan, the astronauts finished in good health and in good spirits, pleased with themselves in their new diplomatic role. The trip ended on the White House lawn, with President Nixon greeting them, along with various cabinet members. About a month after they returned, the astronauts were sent to Ottawa and Montreal, Canada. Apparently, these stops couldn't logistically fit into either the beginning or the end of the world trip. They were received by the Prime Minister of Canada in Ottawa and made appearances there and in Montreal. In addition to the very positive reactions the astronauts received throughout their world tour, official congratulations poured into President Nixon from other heads of state around the world. All nations having regular diplomatic relations with the United States sent their best wishes in recognition of the success of the mission. Those countries without diplomatic relations with the U.S., such as the People's Republic of China, made no formal statement on the Apollo 11 flight to the U.S., and the mission was reported only sporadically by its news media, because the leader of the People's Republic of China, Mao Zedong, refused to publicize successes by Cold War rivals. Of course, to be fair, there were other opinions as well. An editorial in the Stockholm Expressen read, quote, The moonshot was imposing, but it also gives a horrible feeling to think that the United States can handle tremendous technical problems with such ease, while it is considerably more difficult to cope with those of a complicated social, political, and human nature, end quote. The Washington Post quoted Harvard University biochemist Dr. George Wald, who said about his students, quote, I'm afraid that they see in this an exercise of the old and well entrenched, an exercise in great wealth and power, heavy with military and political overtones. I am afraid that they feel a little more trapped, a little more disillusioned, a little more desperate, end quote. In some countries, the news of the landing was apparently simply being discounted as more American propaganda, and in some places the notion of man on the moon actually violated religious taboos, and the news caused great debate and even fistfights in the streets in Mogadishu, Somalia. But those were the exceptions. In general, the moon landing was held as a tremendous accomplishment. Perhaps the most interesting reactions came from the Soviet Union. After all, they were the country that the United States was racing with for preeminence in space. Here is how the Soviet media covered Apollo 11. On July 16, 1969, Soviet radio and TV gave factual accounts 
on Apollo 11's launch, but maintained silence on the Soviet Union's Luna 15 mission. On July 17th, the Russian newspaper Izvestia gave the first Soviet report of President Nixon's July 17th announcement that medals of two deceased Soviet cosmonauts would be placed on the moon by Apollo 11 astronauts. On July 20 through 21st, Soviet Premier Kosygin complimented the U.S. on lunar landing and expressed interest in widening the U.S.-Soviet space cooperation during the July 21st Moscow discussion with former Vice President Hubert H. Humphrey. Soviet TV did not carry live coverage of Apollo 11's lunar landing on July 20th. The Russian news agency TASS announced the landing and carried it in a two-paragraph item on Pravda's front page. Izvestia gave the story more space and featured a photo of the astronauts on the moon. On TV, cosmonaut Konstantin Fyoktistov described the landing as a major landmark and said the crew had coped brilliantly with the mission. Yorgi Petrov, director of the Soviet Institute for Cosmic Research, called Apollo 11 an outstanding achievement, but said more data per ruble could have been gathered by unmanned probes. On July 24th, Soviet TV viewers had live coverage for the first time during the mission at a Moscow TV station connected into Eastern Europe's Intervision Network for live transmission of astronauts being deposited on the carrier Hornet. Later, the station devoted the first two-thirds of the final newscast to Apollo 11 and announced that Soviet President Nikolai Podgorny had sent a telegram to President Nixon offering the Soviet Union's congratulations and best wishes to the space pilots. In 2009, the periodical Scientific American interviewed Sergei Khrushchev, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, to gain some insight into what it felt like to be on the Soviet side during the moon landing. Have a few excerpts. Scientific American asked, Where were you when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon? Khrushchev replied, I remember the moon landing very well. I was 34. I was on vacation with my friends most of whom who worked at the Chalomi Design Bureau. There was also an officer from the KGB. We were in Ukraine, in Chernobyl. Scientific America asked, How widely was the news of the moon landing disseminated in the Soviet Union in advance of the event? Khrushchev replied, Of course, you cannot have people land on the moon and just say nothing. It was published in all the newspapers, but if you remember back then, when Americans spoke of the first man in space, they were always talking of the first American in space, not Yuri Gagarin. The same feeling was prevalent in Russia. There were only small articles when Apollo 11 was launched. Scientific American asked, what was the mood in the Soviet space program when astronauts from Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Khrushchev replied, 
It was very similar to the feeling among Americans when Gagarin went into orbit. Some of them tried to ignore it. Some of them were insulted. But I don't think it had a strong popular effect. First of all, the Soviet propaganda did not play it up or give too much information. It was not secret, but it was not shown to the public. The Russian people had many problems in day-to-day -day life. They were not too concerned about the first man on the moon. Scientific American asked, Was Russia close to sending their own mission? Khrushchev replied, The Russians were not pretty close. I think Russia had no chance to be ahead of the Americans under Sergei Korolev and his successor, Vasily Mishin. Korolev was not a scientist, not a designer. He was a brilliant manager. Korolev's problem was his mentality. His intent was to somehow use the launcher he had, the N-1. It was designed in 1958 for a different purpose and with a limited payload of about 70 tons. His philosophy was, let's not work by stages, as is usually done in spacecraft design, but let's assemble everything and then try it. And at last, it will work. There were several attempts and failures with Lunik. Sending a man to the moon was too complicated, too complex for such an approach. I think it was doomed from the very beginning. Of course, you must understand that I am speaking from the point of view of a competitor. We worked with our own projects at the Chalomi Design Bureau. Maybe we were more realistic, but I don't think we could have been able to beat the Americans. When talking about the Russian space program, there is a misconception in the West that it was centralized. In reality, it was more decentralized than in the United States which had one focused Apollo program. In the Soviet Union, there were different designers who competed with one another. Scientific American asked, What was your father's perspective on Apollo 11? Did you discuss with him the American moon landing over the years? Khrushchev's reply, My father's reaction was, he couldn't understand why Korolev failed in this race. And, of course, I gave my opinion why. My father did not discuss the moon landing too much. He listened to me. He was very proud of Sputnik. He wrote about it in his memoirs. I thought it would be interesting to hear a cosmonaut's point of view of the moon landing. The cosmonaut I chose was the first man to walk in space, Alexei Leonov. These are excerpts from his book, Two Sides of the Moon. Leonov viewed the landing from the Army Engineering Research Center in Moscow. Here is his description of the landing. The room was packed. We were all transfixed by the crackling transmissions from Apollo 11 Commander Neil Armstrong as he guided his lunar landing module, Eagle, down to the surface of the moon. By this point, it was clear that we were in no position to carry out such a mission. The problems we had had with the N-1 rocket meant we would not be able to attempt a lunar landing that year or even the following. So, it was with mixed emotions that I stood watching events unfold on our television monitors that July morning. 
When Apollo 11 had soared away from Cape Kennedy, I kept my fingers crossed. I wanted man to succeed in making it to the moon. If it couldn't be me, let it be this crew. I experienced envy that America had asked a great deal of the crew of Apollo 11 and that they were there accomplishing what was expected of them. But I was also full of admiration for what they were doing. As I watched the grainy black and white images of Neil Armstrong taking his first tentative steps down the ladder of the lunar lander, it was the most amazing feeling. I held my breath as he touched the lunar soil very lightly with the tip of one foot before lifting his other foot away from the limb footpad and letting go his grip of the ladder to stand full square on the surface of the moon. On the morning of July 21, 1969, everyone forgot for a few moments that we were all citizens of different countries on Earth. That moment really united the human race. Even in the military center where I stood, where military men were observing the achievements of our rival superpower, there was loud applause. Very soon this atmosphere of celebration was overtaken by professional talk. We cosmonauts began discussing how easy it appeared to walk on the surface of the moon, how easy it was to jump. We would have to take this into account, we agreed, when we went there ourselves. One of the officers who knew I had been training intensively for a lunar mission came up to me and patted me on the back. That's how it's done, he said. That's the task that lies ahead of you. That achievement filled me with pride for all humanity. At a gathering of cosmonauts a few days later, we drank a toast to the safe return of the crew of Apollo 11. End excerpt. In conclusion, worldwide, the mission of Apollo 11 was regarded as a landmark in man's history, far surpassing all the greatest expeditions of centuries past. Here on Earth, Practical evidence was given in 1969 that the U.S. had emerged after a decade of self-doubt as the most technologically advanced of all nations, including the Soviet Union. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 232 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Final Duties and World Reaction Part 2. Hope you enjoyed this episode and the series of Apollo 11. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First of all, I want to offer sincere apologies for the plethora of of mispronunciations in this episode. Rarely do I get a chance to mispronounce so many words in a single episode. And I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Today we salute my shuttle 
level donors. There are seven so far this year. Shuttle donors contribute $70 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Shuttle Donors. Had a couple afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I took a little risk on this week's episode, and I used some non-English clips. My goal was to give the episode an international feeling, since it was about world reaction. I hope, if you do not speak those languages, French and Italian, that you could pick out a few words, like the astronauts' names and the tone of the person speaking. But, if you did not enjoy that, feel free to fast-forward over that part in your next listen to the episode. If you recall, it's been a while, we began this series on Apollo 11 on March 15th of this year with episode number 201, and it lasted until November 15th at episode 232. When I began this series, I didn't think it would take 32 episodes to cover Apollo 11. (laughs) And I feel like I cut out a, a good portion of it. But there is a definite sense of accomplishment here. Completing Apollo 11 was the first major goal I had for this podcast. I want to thank you for sticking with me and supporting me through the Apollo 11 series. You may have noticed that I ended this series with the Soviets. That was a clue for what is coming next week. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Judith J. donated at the Mercury level and earned her rocket emoji. Boyd R. donated at the Soyuz level. Brian R. donated at the Soyuz level. Brendan C. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. David S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Peter B. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level, and Mark S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. That brings our total Patreons to 142, the highest number we have had so far. Our goal is 150 by the end of the year. We are now eight short. Will we accomplish this goal? I honestly don't know. Our total donors for this year have reached 288, That is 12 short of the goal of reaching 300 by the end of 2017. For those of you who are enjoying the content here and have not donated in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have an item to give away this week to one of the 2017 donors. It is the NASA 3.5-inch diameter meatball sticker. To select the winner, I gave every donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Rich McKinney. Rich, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. 
We have several more of these stickers, so we'll have another drawing next week for the 2017 donor group. I was pleased to see the podcast received five new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I'd like to thank JSM512 and Morris Hardy from Idaho, as well as three people who anonymously rated the podcast five-star. Certainly do appreciate you taking the time to give the podcast the all-important five-star rating. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode and the whole series. Next week, we are going back to the USSR. Then, in the coming weeks, we will begin the Apollo 12 series. Looking forward to that one as I had a chance to see that one launch. In podcast news, uh, last week I told you the top 10 countries for downloads in October. This week I would like to give you numbers 11 through 20. These are the countries, 11 through 20 for October. Norway remained at 11. Ireland remained at 12. Spain moved up to 13. Denmark remained at 14. Number 15, Austria. 16, Belgium. 17, Cyprus. 18, Switzerland, 19, Brazil, and number 20, the Isle of Man. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners in countries 11 through 20. Thanks for listening. Well, in personal news, Mrs. SRH and I were able to do something really special Monday night. We were given two free tickets, including free parking, to the Monday night football game that was played in Charlotte, North Carolina, between my favorite team, the Carolina Panthers, and the Miami Dolphins. Now, these seats were not the ones I usually obtain, and in fact, I haven't even been to a game in probably six years or more. These tickets were the best I have ever gotten. They were on the lower level, about the 40-yard line, in the silver section Silver being one of the colors of the Panthers. If you have a silver ticket, you don't have to go through the general admission area. Instead, there are silver painted doors that you can go through. And let me tell you, it's a whole nother world in there. The concessions, the lounge, they had lounge viewing of the game, and the bathrooms, they were all inside. And substantially cleaner, which was nice since it was a little chilly outside. Of course, the seats were outside because it's an outdoor stadium, but the view was fantastic. I didn't even need binoculars like I usually do. There also seemed to be a better selection of food as well, and the Panthers won by a significant margin. So it was a wonderful night to spend with Mrs. SRH at the Bank of America Stadium. And I want to say thanks to those who gave us the tickets. I certainly do appreciate that. Okay, that's all the off-topic remarks I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 233 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.